Well, Sarah, welcome to Dan. Dan, what do you call this place? I need a better you name. You do need than, a name. Than the room off the garage. <laughs> the room off the garage. Welcome that'll, to the, that'll do. It yeah. sounds like a good bar. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of the underground studios of South End City Church, thanks to Dan's generosity. Welcome um, to Pirate Radio of South End. That's right. That's right. So uh, for everybody on the podcast, uh, we're really thrilled to have Sarah Bessie with our church this week. And she taught us yesterday, and she'll be back tomorrow in our Tuesday night gathering. Um, but while she was here, we just wanted to see if we could get another conversation out of her. So Sarah, thanks for uh, giving us your time today. And uh, you wrote a book called Out of Sorts that I know has meant a lot to a lot of people. And uh, when I read it, it struck me that um, so much of what you were describing and naming um, is also something that a lot of our community is trying to describe and name and grapple. Like, like how, do we f- how do we find language for what God's doing when the kind of faith that we thought we had our hands on like slips through our fingers or falls apart. And so, um, so yeah, we're just going to talk about that today. Um, can you take us back to like your early childhood faith experience church, like what you might call sort of the pre-critical or the construction phase of your life with God? Uh, we are going all the way back. Go back. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my parents were uh, first-generation Christians themselves. I grew up in a part of Canada or in a, um, a neighborhood that was probably now I would describe as post-Christian. Um, it wasn't that my parents had ever left church or even my grandparents had. It was my great-grandparents who were the last generation who really had anything to do with even going to church on Easter or Christmas. And it didn't register in our life at all. I mean, we were, you know working class and um, deeply practical. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't have, you know, value on a practical level, yeah, <laughs> then yeah. it wasn't really... No time for that. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. It's, you know, your life is, is um, you know, pretty uh, pretty simple in a lot of ways. And it was a great way to grow up. I really um, still loved it. And so what... Um, I don't even remember ever having a friend who went to church or a teacher or anyone. I mean, may, I'm sure that probably they are were there. I mm-hmm. just wasn't aware of them. Um, and it actually started when um, a family moved in across the alley from my granny. And they were a Mennonite family. Uh-huh. They had moved out from Manitoba. There's like two spots in Canada where there's a lot of Mennonites. <laughs> okay. Manitoba is one of them, either from Steinbeck or from where I live now, which okay. is Abbotsford. And um, this Mennonite family moved in, and my mom had grown up in a home that lacked a lot of stability, and um, she was looking for mentors on how to be a mom. Yeah. Um, my sister and I were about the age of my children now. And um, this family moved in behind my granny, and my mom kind of noticed them and thought, oh, well, they have their washing out on a line, and they have a garden. They must know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so they became friends, and they had four teenage daughters who all seemed to like each other and their parents. That was another good sign. And so <laughs> they began to be a really important part of our family's life. And um, I'm very, very grateful for their influence in our family. But one thing that um, happened is their daughter, who was about 14 at the time, she was... Um, our babysitter, and she went away to church camp. Hmm. And I don't really know what Mennonites do at church camp, probably canning or something, I'm not <laughs> sure. <but laughs> she was on like that last night, apparently, and they were you know, trying to whip these kids up about evangelism and you, know, you need to go and save your high school for Jesus and all yes. that kind of stuff. And she was someone who was maybe a bit of a quieter soul and didn't think that that was really how she wanted to sort of fulfill the Great Commission. Yeah. And she thought, well, you know, I do babysit for these heathens. That was was us. That's right. (laughs) So she took all of her babysitting money and bought um, a record, um, which, of course, I'm sure like 90% of the people who are listening to this are like, we call them vinyls. Yeah, that's right. We call them vinyls. They're very, very in right now. (laughs) Exactly. But probably not whatever record you're about to describe. And it was from the 70s. It was was an old Maranatha one called Bullfrogs and Butterflies. Okay. And it was, you know, very peppy pop songs from the 70s about how nothing compared to knowing God, not even riding your bike, (laughs) and how, you know, both bullfrogs and butterflies had been born again. Like, it was just very amazing theology. You've blown my mind I know. I'm doing the best I can to convert you. (laughs) And uh, anyway, my sister and I loved it. I mean, we had like the grand total of two records in our house. Mm. So, and you can go a long way on Bullfrogs and Butterflies and Johnny Cash. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much the extent of ours. Huh. And, uh, but when we would go to school, my mom would sit at home alone with that record and mm. listen to it over and over and over again. And she would cry and cry because it was the first time she'd ever heard the gospel. Yeah. yeah. And that was what really ignited something in her heart of saying, I 
think that this is what I've been missing. I think what I need is is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it was very shortly after that that a, a pastor moved in next door to us, and it was you know quite exciting because we'd never met one in the wild. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was funny because my mom like literally probably showed up on their door and was like, oh, wow. "Hi, we would like to go to church and we would like to learn all about Jesus. And yeah. Can you tell me about the Bible?" And the pastor was like, "I've been waiting for this moment right. my entire life. <laughs> it's <laughs> never been this easy. I'm awesome, <laughs> exactly." And so. So that was really the start. I mean, we got our start in really small, charismatic, happy, clappy churches in Western Canada that met in, um, you know, community centers and basements and um, the leisure center on Friday nights where church did not. I mean, again, every church in my town was empty and had been for generations. And so we were kind of part of this renewal movement that we didn't know existed. We didn't know where we fit in church history. We didn't know that we were part of a renewal movement. We didn't know, you know, any of these things. We right. didn't know there were different kinds of Christians. We yeah, didn't know yeah. any of these things. And so it was a really sweet way to come to faith um, over, you know, definitely a bit of over-realized eschatology. <laughs> definitely a little bit too literal. Yeah, okay. Um, and that's for, for people without yeah. that kind of uh, literacy, like we're talking about a way of thinking about the end of things yeah, and the way exactly. the Bible talks about them. And it was pretty literal, pretty intense. Right. I would say, look, looking back on it now, I would say that it would probably have a, a really strong fit on, um, you know, it's it's a strain of Pentecostalism, but really influenced by the American prosperity movement. Um, and the word of faith movement yeah, okay. as well. And uh, yeah, it was it was something that honestly transformed our lives mm, yeah. in in a million ways and brought a lot of richness and goodness to us. But for for me, I mean, I didn't learn a hymn till my twenties, huh. right? And you know, our liturgy right. were you know things like you know choruses that you had to sing at least seventeen times yes, for the Holy Spirit to right. really move, right? That's right. That's <laughs> so, the number. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like it doesn't happen at fourteen times. It has to be at <laughs> seventeen is when you really start to feel it. That's right. Did you uh, do you remember feeling at home in that um, kind of space pretty quickly? Like, was that um, something that was easy for you to find your way in? Um, I would say yes. Yeah. I mean, I was. I mean, if you think I'm overly earnest now, you should have seen me as a seven-year-old. And so <laughs> it was, um, I, I deeply fit there and deeply loved it. Um, you know, I was the kid on the front row who was, you know, dancing. I was, yeah, yeah. you know, deeply committed to to church and found a lot of meaning and life and goodness there. Um, I think it was... A number of years later, probably further into my teens and my 20s, when I really began to feel like the thing that I grappled with probably the most is that my tradition and the the, um, the form of faith that I initially was given or that was initially constructed for me um, was what Barbara Brown Taylor calls like a solar Christian. Like it exists mainly in the light of certainty and a narrative of victory and yeah. formulas and answered prayers and if this then that. Yes. It's a very literal form of faith. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, if you are participating in that for longer than a hot second, you begin to realize mm-hmm. that that's not actually how it is, and that there are lunar seasons to your soul and to your life and to the lives of the people whom you love. Yes. Yeah. Um, and what's more is I began to realize. That that I met God more um, clearly and intimately in the seasons of, um, <clears throat> pardon me, in the seasons of of that shadow. That I met God more in the valleys than in the, the big mountaintops that we were always chasing. Yeah. Um, and that the if-then formulas did not add up. And there's a lot of unacknowledged sadness in my tradition. Hmm. Um, and people who find themselves as part of the company of people who have unanswered prayers um, either feel they are often left behind. And I think one of the things that I'm very thankful for in my tradition and in how I was initially introduced to faith was that um, that I know now is very different than how a lot of people maybe who came out of a Calvinist or evangelical background um, is that I was always taught that God was so good. Right. 
Right. And so God was never the author of pain or sorrow or suffering, and God was never behind you getting cancer and, you know, any of those things. And so that was a really big gift to me to always be understanding that God was deeply good and deeply loving and always consistently was deeply loving. But then the flip side of that was then that if you were suffering or you were sick or you were noticing the fact that there's a lot of injustice in the world, the person who's to blame is not God, so it must be you. Oh, wow. And so then it becomes your faith was not strong enough. You were not praying hard enough. You were not in enough faith. You were not whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that's the shadow side Mm -hmm. of that because you're always looking for somewhere to point a finger. Right. And then that becomes the places you end up pointing it at the people who are suffering or the people who are struggling. And that to me was not a place where I wanted to be. Um, So did that, um, do you remember like a, is there, how old are you when you sort of start naming that uh, discontent? um, I was probably, probably already in my teens when I began to sort of name that or identify that. Um, I would say that the real shift for me happened in my late 20s, though. So it was a long, slow burn, for sure. I think it is for a lot of people. I mean, the seeds are there for a long time before oftentimes they, they shift. And the way that I've often described it, or I've thought about it anyway, has been that you can have a lot of theory happening around you or questions or things you're noticing. Um, And my thicket of what that was, was pretty vast. It was everything from women in the church and, um, you know, justice issues and poverty. And, you know, um, at the time, um, it was the uh, mid and late 90s, and there was a lot of conversation around around ethics. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, and there were a lot of questions about war and just war. And I mean, so you were having all of these larger conversations about scripture and um, politics and whatever else, but those are all very theoretical. And those can be the things that bring you to the threshold, but you actually only usually cross that threshold because of grief. Yeah. And so the thing that will bring you to that embarking point into the wilderness which is what I have always called that that season of my life because I'm nothing if not overdramatic. dramatic. I've always called that season of my life that followed that, my wilderness, but really the embarking point or the thing that, that pushed me over the threshold and what I find it is for most people is that it's usually rooted in your grief. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was certainly what happened for me. So my husband and I um, had been married for a number of years. We were, um, people often know that we have four children and it's, on to be perfectly honest, a, a bit of a miracle and a, and a marvel to us that we do because I've been pregnant eight times. And at that point, we had lost three children and had none. And so we had no answers. Um, At the time, I was having a lot of faith crisis of understanding the, you know, church movement and had a lot of questions about scripture and how we meet and what we do and what this is and what we are in the world and all of these sorts of things. At the time, my husband is a pastor, so that's not at all awkward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. hey, that whole project that you're yeah, working exactly. for? Yeah, let's talk about that. I know. I have some existential problems about the exact <laughs> thing we're doing to make a living right yes, now. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it was... It was um, let me think back. So we were just actually about to go on a um, a mission trip with a bunch of kids. We were taking like 23 or 24 kids over to Germany on a mission trip because that's what you do when you want to save the world. That's you right. take children to Germany and you ask them to dance on street corners and think that you're conscious. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of thoughts I have about the missions movement would get me in a lot of trouble on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or, or win you a lot of friends. I don't know. <laughs> Fix it, Jesus. <laughs> and so, anyway, we were going on this trip, and I had just um, our church that my husband was a pastor at was actually in the middle of a lot of turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, there was sin being revealed, and you know, people were falling off of pedestals, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of politics going on, and people trying to manage that, and you know, do damage control, and then making it worse, and all of these things were happening. And anyone who's been part of a church that's imploding knows that that is. A deeply painful thing, yeah. and um, and this was no different. And so it felt like everything was kind of up in the air at mm-hmm. the time, and um, and it was right in that moment that I began to realize that I was expecting a baby again. Oh. And you know, I think some part of me thought that it was 
um, just sort of like this kiss from heaven. Like, oh, you don't actually need to go into the wilderness. Look at the gift that I'm giving you. Um, you know, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. And um, it was probably a day before we were leaving to go to Germany that I went to the doctor again. And um, when you're someone like me, they like literally want to check you all the time, right? right? right. <laughs> so I was going in for another appointment. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the ultrasound technician just kind of like put down her thing, and she was like, "Well, this baby's dead too, and so we're just going to have to oh my to take care of everything." And I went home, and my husband and I were laying on the floor in our bedroom, and we were weeping, and we were doing that crying where you cry so hard that like the tears are in your ears, you know, you feel <laughs> like you're swimming underwater, you know, yeah. you're laying flat on your back. And we were crying and we were trying to figure out what to do and what to do about the trip and what to do about the baby and what to do about everything. And I turned to my husband and I said, you know what? I said, I think I think I want to double down on this one. I think I really want to believe God for this one. I want to do everything that I know to do to see this happen the way that I think it should. And so that was really a point when I began to be like, everything that my tradition had taught me, I deployed. Right, um, I was like, no more Radiohead, only Jesus music, and no more. <laughs> we're gonna write all the Bible verses down on index cards and stick them on the bathroom mirror and on in your car. And I'm gonna speak life and not death. And I'm going to, you know, get in prayer and get in faith, and you know, call the elders and you know, do all the things that I knew to do to try to save this baby's life and to save this moment for us. I felt like it had a lot of. Um, of weight. And so we packed up all these kids and we took them to Germany and only lost one passport, so that's good. (laughs) And, you know, the great thing about teenagers is just like an absolute gift that they give to us is they don't care. (laughs) There's just no part of them that cares. (laughs) And so it was an easy distraction, right? Just to kind of, you know, walk through that week and just continue to stay in that place of like, I'm going to contend and I'm going to be a person of faith and I'm going to have my miracle and I'm going to not back down and I'm going to do my part because God will always do God's part. Yeah. And um, it, I mean, the whole time I'm losing this baby, the whole time this miscarriage is happening. And I remember after a few days standing on the streets of Bonn, it was um, one of those cobblestone streets that are quite narrow and everybody was moving in one direction and I was facing the other direction. And it felt almost like when you are, like almost like a rock in the middle of a stream. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's moving past me on every side and I'm standing there stock still. And I remember this moment so clearly where I, I went deep in a in a in a um, a deep corner of prayer that I'd maybe never really encountered before, of honesty, because up until till then prayer had always been how to manipulate God, right? How to get what you want, how to make sure your prayers were answered, how to make sure that you were ticking all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Performative, and exactly. It was performative and prescriptive. Yeah. Um, and that was a moment of of really deep intimate prayer for me, where I really just turned to God and I said, "You have forgotten me." You do not see me, you do not answer my prayers, and you have forgotten me. Mm. You do not see me, and you never have. And that was kind of the end of the shift. And I remember, um, you know, we went home, you know, delivered all the kids back to their parents, which was great, and um, had our miscarriage, uh, everything kind of finished um, back at home in our uh, in our uh, rancher back in Texas. And um, and I had to go to church that following Sunday oh, yeah. because you're the pastor's wife. This right. is what you've got to do. And of course, now you've got to go and tell everybody how you've saved the world <laughs> with all these teenagers. <laughs> Show them pictures of them hugging children who are really, <laughs> don't conf- be really confused. <laughs> German teenagers don't cooperate like children in Mexican orphanages. And so we ended up... Um, being there at church, and I could not get up and do it. I couldn't sing the songs. I couldn't sing all the victory songs and all the ways. I mean, again, when you're one of those people who the thing answers didn't work and these things didn't happen, it stops being theoretical and it stops being the people out there and it stops being, um, it becomes deeply personal and you feel very forgotten. And um, this was a moment that was really the shift for me of how I entered the wilderness. It didn't stop me from the wilderness. It didn't spare me from it. But it gave me a real gift when I walked through the door and entered into it. And there was a woman there who was a pastor and had been a pastor at the church for a number of years. Um, She didn't really know me at all. 
Uh, she had left right at the same time we were hired, and so she knew of us, but didn't, I mean, it's not like we had a deep personal relationship mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. And the whole time we're at church, she is watching me. And, you know, God forgive me, I thought she was judging me. Oh, uh, yeah. Right, like, what is the matter huh. with Sarah? She yeah. is not performing. She's not leading <laughs> the way that she should be in this moment. Mm -hmm. And she makes a beeline to me right after service, and I'm sitting there, and she comes over, and she crouches right down beside me, and she says, Sarah, um, I've been watching you for the entire service. And I said, yes, I know. Uh -huh. And then she said, um, and I feel like I have a word from God for you. Oh no! And you're, are you? What are you thinking? You, well, this <laughs> can go one of two ways. Yeah, right? yes. <laughs> and I have definitely been on the other side of that. And so you know, but again, you're Canadian, and you say yes. Of course, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And uh, and she says, I was watching you, and I had a very clear word from God for for you. And she said, the word that God had wanted me to come over here and tell you specifically is that He has not forgotten you, that you are not forgotten, and you are deeply seen. And she turned over to her Bible and she opened up this passage in Isaiah chapter 45. I think it's 45, 18. And it says, um, could I ever forget you? Even if your mother were to forget you, would a mother forget the baby that she bore? And even if your mother would forget you, I would never forget you. See, I've written your names on the palm of my hands. And that for me was almost like permission to go through the door. Wow. And to say, everything may fall. I may need to deconstruct church and scripture and womanhood and justice and signs and wonders and how I view God and every, every other thing may need to be pulled apart here. But I'm going through the door knowing I'm deeply seen and deeply loved by God, and that felt like permission to go. Wow. And that was really the embarking point for me that happened in my late 20s. Yeah. Which is a lot longer story than I think no, you probably you. needed to hear. No, I think it's really helpful. Thank you for um, sharing all that, Sarah. It's interesting. I think um, my own my own story and a lot of friends I think of where there was a long period of sort of subterranean exactly um, sort of building, and then there's something provokes something. I guess permission or or there's just something that finally causes a person to say this isn't working. And it's just finally time to face that. Mm -hmm. And I think about, um, even because of my own experience with some of that, I think about how um, so many churches and pastors and faith leaders and communities maybe sort of design themselves to prevent that moment. Oh, absolutely. Right? And I'm, I'm, I'm learning um, to like thank God for that moment in people's lives. I even, you know, friends who grew up evangelical and who are who would say they're an atheist right now there's a number of them where i'm like i'm actually really happy for you right now because if that's where you are that's where you are and the fact that you can name that feels far more liberating and true than lying to yourself or having to lie to a community or, or your parents or whatever right so it's a real moment of truth and i think that yeah. that's one of the things that people of um of faith were never really told is they were told to be afraid of that moment yeah. They were told to avoid the wilderness. Uh -huh. And I think that oftentimes when people find themselves at that threshold, they think they only really have two options. That the options are to, you know, do tr do what I tried to do for a lot of years and what a lot of people will do, which is double down on it. Yeah. I have no questions. Everything's fine. Look at how fine I am. I'm going to keep leading Bible studies and work harder and look at how much I can dance, you know, while Rome is burning. Yeah. Or you think you have to burn the whole thing down, right? Which is right. then what I chose after that moment, right? I, I did. I wanted to, you know, burn the whole thing down. There's mm -hmm. nothing here for me. There's no life here. There's no, no goodness here for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think learning to find that third way through the wilderness, unfortunately, not skipping it, yeah, yeah. Um, is really the thing that church has failed people on. Uh, yeah. um, we don't shepherd people super well. Yeah. When they want to choose choose that way, yeah. when they want to choose that that way through the wilderness, um, and you know, one of the things I remember reading um, later on in in my life, especially when I was working on out of sorts, I was reading a lot of spiritual formation studies and things. There was one from uh, Dr. James Fowler that talks about the six stages of spiritual formation, mm -hmm. and the stage where we usually collapse is at that stage two or three. Um, that is, if then. Right, he calls it the mythic literal stage, okay. which is where, and then he says quite, quite pointedly in the study, our churches are designed 
for this stage. If then, uh, if I if I pray the right prayer, exactly, I got the right thing. I, Absolutely. If yeah. I do this, and anything that threatens the my way of understanding or my way of answering the questions in the world or yeah. my you know index cards of apologetics or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that those things are perceived as outside threats. Uh-huh. That you really like the authority and you really like this structure and anything that is, everything has to kind of fit within this very organized and way of seeing the world. And then that fourth stage is that angst and pain and struggle, mm-hmm. that will often be what you are kind of launched into. But our churches function best yeah. and are almost always for people who stay in stage three and yeah. never progress. Uh-huh. And so oftentimes when you progress out of stage three or you move into stage four or five or whatever, it's hard to find a faith community. Right. It's really hard to find people who are, who are um, walking through that door and then in the wilderness with you and will shepherd you well in that space. Wow. Which is why I think... Um, it's refreshing when you do find it. Yeah, it feels like finding water in the desert. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I was just thinking about. Um, I was thinking about a lot of things, but I was thinking about. Uh, so, uh, one part of my story that I won't go too deeply into, but in a season where, like, really similar, feeling really forgotten by God, um, I I was a biblical studies major, and so I was trying to be like a good Christian while I was really pissed at God. <laughs> And so I was reading. How'd that go for you? Really, actually, it actually went really well. There you go. Because the Bible's good at that, right? It but is. nobody told me. I know. So That's I was the thing. Yeah, <laughs> I was reading the Psalms in the Message translation, and uh, I found a Psalm that just named my protest really well. Mm. And I mean, I was really, really hurt. Um, I'd been in a mental health hospital for ten days, and I'd been ashamed, and a lot of stuff was going on. And. Um, I remember like finding this psalm as like my rally cry, you know, God, you're fickle. You're not you're not who you said you were and you're not for me who you were for my parents. Mm-hmm. And I like I nursed that grudge with that psalm for months, I think. Before before I um I was a Google studies major, but I wasn't a very good one. So it was like I didn't recognize that it was a familiar psalm because it was in the message, which paraphrased it, and it was only after nursing it for a while. I was like, why does Psalm 22 sound familiar? And then I Googled it, and of course I saw the, the translation I was used to hearing, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which you know, many people will understand, that's the prayer that Jesus prays on the cross. And th- that for me was like a defining moment. First of all, that maybe Jesus isn't like um, absent um, in, this, in this experience, but in fact, um, profoundly present. But then secondly, um, maybe the Bible is a very different book than I thought it was. Um, and so like I know you mentioned in your book, um, I think you tap into Brueggemann's uh, orientation, disorientation, new orientation. Is that in there? Or am I making that up? Um, I think it is, but I didn't I didn't get into it too much. Oh, okay. I, I do love Walter Brueggemann. Yeah, though, he's the man, I right? Read, I know. Yeah. Yeah, just, oh my gosh. Well, so Brueggemann, um, a little, little Bible nerd talk for listeners. Um, here for it because I can't help it. Um, but there's going to be a biblical studies major for us. This is great. <laughs> so there's going to be Gunkel in Germany a hundred years ago, going back to Germany to keep the theme. Okay, there we go. And Gunkel basically says there's three basic kinds of psalms, and it's one of those moments in biblical studies where a scholar's work sort of everybody kind of says, "Yep, you're right." And a hundred years later, everybody still kind of works with these categories. And he says there's psalms of praise, God, you're awesome. Psalms of thanksgiving. God, you're awesome because of what you've done. And then Psalms of Lament, you know, God, where are you? Um, the Psalms that bleed and weep. And um, so he does this genre analysis. And then he observes that of the three categories, the lament's actually the biggest category, which is really interesting. And then Brueggemann comes along and takes Gunkel's categories and says, there's actually more going on here, right? There's, there's a movement of orientation, disorientation, new orientation. And it's kind of a cycle Praise is just you wake up one day and the world is the way you want it to be and God is who you think he is and the picture kind of fits together and then prayers of lament name the moments when it all falls out of sorts. Like where the thing that you hold on to sort of slips through your fingers and then on the other side of that there's sort of a new day that waits for you sometime. Yeah. A new orientation to the world, a new reminder of God's goodness and presence. Um, so like that, that just changed my entire view of the Bible and it, um, I felt like it gave me permission to say this book is actually not about keeping you in a certain place, it doesn't seem. It's not trying to keep you in stage two. It's not trying no. to keep you in if-then, right? It's like this breathing companion to like walk with you through this thing. And um, 
for me, like for me, like I went from the Bible being one of the causes of my deconstruction because I was like, this book doesn't seem to work the way everybody tells me it works, right? Um, to being like my favorite companion on the journey and sort of a permission giver for mm-hmm. all of that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you find yourself in that sort of like not. And I, I'm always trying to be tender about like slapping these categorical movements on people's journeys, right? Because I know it's never quite so tidy as. And then I was in deconstruction, and now I'm in reconstruction. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But but coming out of Germany in that moment, you get this um, really helpful word from this woman in your church, and you have it sounds like you have this kind of permission and um, this sort of release into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still a pastor's wife at that point, right? Yes. Yeah. So what's it like between you and your community as you're going through uh, that? It's difficult. It was really difficult. Um, I look back on it now, 15 years later, um, with a lot of grief and regret, to be honest. Um, I don't know that I could have done it any differently than I did. Um, and and yet, I feel like I missed a lot with, um, like a lot of people. I think that when you very first enter that season, all you can, all you can really see is maybe the, um, the things that are wrong or the things that are broken or the things that are, are done wrong. And I missed a lot of the beauty and goodness that was there too. Um, so it was really difficult. We ended up leaving, mm-hmm. um, not simply because I was in a process of deconstruction. It was a, you know, there were a lot of reasons and we moved back home and, uh, to Canada. I mean, I really left church for nearly seven years. Wow. You yeah. know, the whole time my husband went back to seminary and was, um, his reaction in this process of deconstruction that we were in, I went really hard left and went very hard towards um, you know, anti-institutionalism and, you know, let's tear everything down and that kind of stuff. And he went really hard in the other direction towards saying, I need more authority. I need uh, more, more structure. structure. I need more learning. I, you know, he began to kind of point to the, well, the problem is not this. The problem is how we did it. And so we went in two totally separate directions for a, a really long time, um, and you know that was it was difficult, right? It's I, I think that anybody who thinks that you can be in a in a process of deconstruction and honestly talk about um, fear and about loss, um, and who does not have regrets on the other side of it, mm-hmm. is probably not saying enough that's true, yeah. because relationships do change, and there are there are um, there is loss that's associated any time you step out of the lane that you were supposed to be in. Um, And that was something that that was difficult, Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. I mean, at the same time, um, I felt like my husband and I weathered it really well. Mm -hmm. Um, He was definitely the one in the the relationship who made the commitment that we did not marry each other for ministry or Mm -hmm. for um, certain opinions that we married each other. Wow. And that what yeah. we, he was not afraid. Huh. You, and I think that that's one of the biggest gifts we can give to people who are in transition or who in, are in the process of deconstruction um, is to not be afraid for them wow. and, to, and to love them throughout without a, without a sense of fear to it yeah. um, and give them almost the gift of our faith and our confidence and our, our constancy. Did you, did you and your husband have to find other things that you held in common mm-hmm. that maybe you, the volume wasn't turned up on them yeah. prior? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and he was definitely a good part conversation partner for me as I was going through these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would be reading and I would be, you know, challenging and I would be in places and the whole time he's also learning and being challenged, but in a very di- different direction. And so we ended up, you know, diverging really hard, but then because we were in conversation the whole time and, um, and deeply faithful to each other, um, we moved towards one another again from different directions. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we've landed at a place now, I mean, we've been married for 17 years and together for 20. Um, we have, we often joke that we have both been married to like half a dozen different people. (laughs) (laughs) There was the blue phase. (laughs) There have been so many different versions of each other, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and he didn't stay the same. Yeah. He was in his own process of deconstruction. It just looked really, really different than mine. Mm -hmm. And, um, learning to give each other the gift of allowing each other to change, um, 
I think has been one of the the strengths that we ended up finding. Yeah. Um, that was a that was a tremendous gift that we were able to give to each other and and uh, able to weather that season well. Um, not perfectly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but definitely um, better than I think we people would have expected from the outside when you are diverging so much in your expressions of faith or your way of understanding God. Um, there was also a, a lot of respect for each other's journeys. Yeah. And that was helpful. Yeah. I think about, um, I feel like the relational disruption is maybe sort of uh, undernamed oh, yeah. in some of this stuff, right? Whether it's a marriage or friendships or mm-hmm. um, a church. Well, people act like it's all happening internally just to you. Right. Right. And it's not, yeah. right? It has a deep effect on your parents. Yeah, it has, or the people who, whomever it is, who introduced you to faith, who built the edifices that now you are so urgently tearing down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has an effect on the people with whom you've been in community or been uh, worshiping alongside of. It, I mean, I can't tell you the number of you know concerned emails and conversations I had with people who wanted to make sure right. <laughs> that it's right. not going too far. Yeah, you know, and so that's that's part of it. That's part of being a person. And I don't think we that when you're in the process of deconstruction, it's hard to be gracious with people who are afraid for you. Yeah, and it is hard to um, have patience for their fear and their worry because you are pushing up against a boundary that they've been taught never should be pushed against. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can, while you are in the process of deconstruction, find something in you to have some tenderness or empathy for their mm-hmm. worry and their fear, um, that's great. But most of us can't, right? And so. Yeah. Do do you think, um, you mentioned their fear for you. I also often think about, um, you know, uh, sort of analogously, like from what I understand, like in a relationship, when one person names their shame, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that's hard for the other person is because that other person also has shame. And for it to be named threatens them with their own shame. Like, do you think there's also... I'm afraid for you if you're going through this sort of evolution of faith, but I'm also you being in my in my faith, like me me having to watch you go through that is confronting me with the fact I may not be quite as certain as I like to think I am. Oh yeah, it's absolutely a threat. Yeah, yeah. right. And sometimes it's hard to perceive that threat. Yeah. Um, when you're in the midst of it, I think that when you're very invested in it's fine, everything's fine. It's very hard when someone comes along and says. It's not. It's not fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wow. <laughs> it is not fine. Yeah. And so, because then all of a sudden you have to think, well, maybe it's not fine. Yeah. Maybe it's not fine. Maybe the way we do things, or maybe the way that I've been doing this, or the way that this is, is not fine. Yeah. Um, and if you're not ready for that, you know, personally, it can be it can be really disruptive and difficult. Yeah. For people, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that I think that there's a lot of. Um, of also shame that people have about it because a lot of times they have been taught um, to fear the wilderness or to or that people who are entering the wilderness have lost their faith, mm-hmm. that they have walked away from God, um, that they have walked away from everything that is good in church, that they are in jeopardy, that they are on a slippery slope. Um, and instead, I think that part of what I wanted to do in Out of Sorts and part of what I think that you guys are doing at, at church is frame it as a necessary and good season yeah, of your life. Yes. And even one of the things I believe deep in the core of my heart is that oftentimes that threshold is an invitation from the Holy Spirit, yes. that it is not something to be afraid of, that it's not something to steer people away from, You know that if people are finding themselves at that shift or at that change or in that moment, how do we love them well, shepherd them well, walk with them in that process instead of trying to you know, redirect or numb them? to what is actually happening and instead honor it and say, you know what, if there's a hunger and there is a thirst in you for more or for different or for what is on the other side of this, or if things are being taken from you, whether it is because, and again, a lot of times it will wear the guise of anger Mm -hmm. and fear Mm -hmm. and questions, but at the core often it's grief. And so when you instead are saying, you can honor that. And you can cross over that threshold with our love and with our blessing and with our understanding that this is a necessary and good part of your spiritual formation and that there is life on the other side of it. You are not losing us and you are not losing God simply because you have entered into this space of feeling like everything you knew about God is disappearing like steam on a mirror. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think about, I mean, I know we, you and I just mentioned this before we hit record, but um, for Sapin City Church, we've said before that we, uh, we kind of, I kind of joke about it, and I got to be careful how I joke about it, but um, we call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. Uh, but I kind of have a secret identity statement for our church, which is Southland City Church, a great place to lose your faith. Um, <laughs> and I want to be careful because like, I'm not rooting for people to walk away from Jesus, and I'm not rooting to take away from someone um, their faith when it's producing fruit in their lives and all that. But I, A, I am rooting for certain kinds of faith to be lost. Like you've helped our community name this week the kind of faith that props up patriarchy. I'm like, I'm definitely rooting for that kind of faith to be lost. So there's kinds of faith that I feel like the prophetic call of the church is to challenge. But then secondarily, and maybe the original meaning I had for that was knowing that like, knowing that it's happening for lots of people. There's just, we live in a moment, and I know you mentioned Phyllis Tickle's sort of idea of this great rummage sale that happens every 500 years. And I think if anybody thinks for a moment about what we're living in right now with the internet and globalization and um, the collision of all sorts of different perspectives on, on faith and God and spirituality. Like this is not like all other periods of change, right? So, so it, it's going to happen. People are going to ask questions they've never thought to ask before. Um, they're going to move through seasons of deconstruction. And it struck me with a number of friends. Um, I, I actually feel like in, in serious seasons of deconstruction in my life, I felt like one of the lucky ones who um, found myself with some of the primary voices of faith in my life were really well equipped. Um, to walk with me and then I watched other friends enjoy none of that blessing mm -hmm. and at the very it's moment lonely. yeah at the, and, it, it's, and it's, lonely. it's like sadistic that at the very moment that the ground beneath your feet quakes because the way that you put the whole world together doesn't work anymore like that's traumatic enough and then to exacerbate the trauma with isolation just seems um, really really dark to me mm -hmm. and so yeah like we as a church we talk about that I, I often wonder then you mentioned like churches can sort of build themselves around that phase of faith that if then kind of reinforce that i'm always asking myself like okay so what is it like in, in the operating system of a community right like what do we install what do, what do we do here to be the kind of community that can sort of walk in maturity with one another like one thing i've been thinking about is i wonder if you could speak to this if you've had any experience with it but like I grew up in a church that was, you know, worship songs and sermons, um, and there's a lot of belief content there, right? Um, which, like, at the end of the day, it felt like what, what held us together was agreement um, on a lot of things. And then it begs the question, can a community hold together without those agreements, right? Um, and so I think about the sacraments, for example, as an experience of unity for the church that doesn't really require a lot of agreement. Mm -hmm. which I love, right? Um, so, like, I've just been wondering about how does a community sort of organize itself in a way that it's more nimble and it's more um, even kind of flexible, right? Like, hey, we can, we can stretch and make room for you here um, as you walk in and you say, I don't believe any of this today. And mm -hmm. We can stretch and make room for you who feels just profoundly connected to this faith and the life of God and your life and all that. Like, have you seen churches or even, like, in your own church experience... Is, is there any way that you could describe what helps the church be good at that? That's, that's, a, that's is, a great question. Um, I have seen churches that have done it well, and I have seen churches that have not. Um, and I think exactly what you're you're expressing is often the core of it is even this sense of um, it's even in the spirit of the church uh -huh. that it's yes. not the enemy. Yeah. Right, and even that being communicated, even if there is, um, and that being a place of welcome or a place that's actually being named, um, I think is is deeply important for people. Mm. I think one of the things that often we find too, those of us who have been in a in a process of deconstruction or are staunchly there, um, will often you know be resentful or or bitter towards the people who built the edifice that we are tearing down, uh. and learning to have grace as you were saying, um, for the people who are still there and not trying to jump them to where you are or force your, your experiences or questions into them, I think is also part of it, not trying to take that from them, yeah. um, letting them be where they are and honoring that as being part of where they are. I think that there's a lot of ways that, that churches have um, been able to find a way that 
uh, names that, that makes uh, space for that, not only just in terms of their programming, but in their heart, in their prayer, in their, uh, in the ways that they embody the the sacraments, and not just in their Sunday morning gatherings, but even in terms of the life of the church actually yeah. that's taking place. Yeah. You know, the other six days of the week, <laughs> right, right, where right. you're in community with one another and you are doing life together, and how you show up for one another. Um, it moves from being theoretical to being, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Right and having that almost that ministry of presence and and uh, and honestly, I mean, maybe we've churchied up words too much. Um, you know, learning how to be a person, learning how to be a friend. Right. Yeah. Like just that. Right. right. Yeah. Like, I know it sounds like you know very simple, and yet to me is something that we overcomplicate sometimes in the church by trying to attach all these like really big words to. Yeah. And um, one thing I remember feeling deeply healed about during uh, my process of deconstruction and then reconstruction was really wanting to reclaim this whole notion of like, you get to be a person. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's good to be a person, uh-huh. right? You don't have to just, you're not like a tool being used by God, Yeah. right? That you get to actually be, you know, complicated and in relationship with people and you don't have to have all the answers all the time and you get to be who you really are all the time, have a yeah. seamlessness yeah. to your life that's not performative. One, one of the, you know, we're um, in this sort of Imago Day conversation right now, and one of the things we've been trying to say as a community is what we believe about like what it means to be human in the in this story. It ought to actually make us better at presuming like the depth of a person, rather than causing us to like one dimensionalize a person, right? And I think it's like. A, if we actually hear what the scriptures are saying and see what Jesus is doing, we'll create more space for one another to be complicated. Yeah. Right? Rather than um, trying to kind of whitewash that or, or shrink it or make it flat in a person. I, I know for me, like as a pastor, and this, this you might, you were about you getting in trouble. I might get in trouble with this. I don't know. But like <laughs> as a pastor, I, I, we'll I, edit it later if it gets really bad. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I've had to make peace with the idea that like, I think for me to be a true friend, and I mean true like in a deep sense, and for me to actually honor the way that God relates to me, I think that when friends are sort of going through the evolution of their faith, I think it's actually really important for me to to relinquish any attachment to the results of that journey in their life. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like, I, I'm not going to try to push this in your life in any certain direction. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell my friends, I'll be like, I mean, I do have an agenda, which is like, I'll be honest, like, I love Jesus. I think um, life, the life with God that, that he describes and, and makes possible is like, is where it's at. But I'm also like, I've, I'm trying to hold a really um, humble assessment of, of like, I'm, I'm not your spiritual boss. I'm not your, and I even believe that as a pastor, actually, which might freak people out, but like, I... I stand up in our church and I look around the room and I think, I can't possibly take responsibility for the spiritual lives of these people because I'm not in charge of them, right? Like, I can take responsibility for what we do as a church. I can take responsibility for whether I lead with integrity. I can take responsibility for what I preach. Mm-hmm. But I know I, it's, I'm just fooling myself if I think, right, that I can drive the results of that journey in somebody else's life. And um, I remember I had a moment when I was really, I was wrestling with friends because I thought it was my job to like, fix them and to get them back or whatever. And I had a moment in prayer where, um, some, like a clarity broke in and I, I, I I will, I'll kind of like stake my, my life on this conviction, which is that, that at the end of my my life, like, I don't think God's going to ask me if I changed them. Mm -hmm. I actually think God's going to ask me if I love them. Like, I really believe that difference, you know? And when that clarity settled in, I, like it, I, then I realized, oh, this is helping me be a much better companion. And I actually am getting to see God do more through, through these friendships than when I was trying to like white knuckle and force this like thing for them, right? And for the church too, I wonder about how we could embody that, which is a little confusing for people, I think, maybe, because it's like, well, don't we have an agenda? Well, yeah. And I think that it's very, um, it's disruptive and it's different for people who are used to you know, having that sort of structure or having that sort of expectation. And I think that that's so key. I love how you express that. I, I really, really like that. I think that um, that to what it ends up triggering in us sometimes um, that is worth looking at um, or at least making space for is is why we feel that. 
And oftentimes it's because we have a vision of who God is. Uh-huh. Almost everything that we do really does track its way back to what we really believe at the core of ourselves about the nature and character of God, who we believe God is. And if we believe that God is filled with judgment and anger and you know has a very you know, is standing over us with like a ruler waiting for us to step out of line, then we react to our friends and to our church or to the people around us with that level of like, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is gonna be a nightmare because you're really at your core afraid of God. Yeah. And so I think that even that is something that will trigger in other people is this sense of even needing then to look at how how wide do you believe is the mercy of God? How big is the story of God? Is it not more welcoming and inclusive and open and good and loving and strong mm-hmm. than maybe it would be for you to only have this one narrow expression? Like how how have you actually perceived God? And I think that that's something that was one of the first things in the process of um, reconstruction for me that was really the beginning point was um, was to begin to see that, wow, yeah. right? Like you were saying, you know, like it's, is God going to say you kept them, you know, adhering right. <laughs> to these, you know, points of doctrine? Yeah. Or did you love them well? Yeah. yeah. And I think that that is something um, then that tips our hand in terms of what is God's priority? What is God's heart? Who is God? Mm-hmm. And what would this actually look like? And that can be tremendously healing. Yeah. You know, yeah, for I love people. That. Yeah. I'm finding that. If I can truly relinquish that that one thing, that in the long run, the posture that it allows in me is actually creating the opportunity to to at times like to give a, a reason for my faith, right? Mm-hmm. And and to be um, transparent about what I believe and why I believe it, but without without any of that energy, and I'm finding more fruit from that. And, yeah, uh, not having a cherished outcome yeah. of it having to look. Yeah. The way that it did, even for you, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think is 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 part of it, and also I think being able to take a long view. Yes, you know, of being able to say, "Well, you know, you're here right now, and that's great." Just like I'm here right now, and that's great. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's right. But you are never done evolving. You're never yeah. done shifting. You're never done sorting through those things, like we were talking about with the rummage sale, you know, metaphor. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I think that's so. Um, you know, illuminating even within that metaphor from Phyllis Tickle is this notion of like the church as an institution might be in that process of 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 a rummage sale of figuring out what to keep and what to toss and what needs to be reclaimed and what needs you know how we're going to move into this next season of life and shift and there's a lot of health on the other side of it, even if the old remains in some capacity. Um, but at the end of the day, the reason why the church is doing that is because we are doing that. Yeah. And we are the church. Yeah. And we are the ones who are in that process. And it's deeply personal, even though it's happening on a macro level as well. All right. So I want to, um, I do want to talk a little bit about like what life and faith feel like today for you. Um, and I've got a few sort of particular questions within that. But um, so I think you said seven years where you weren't, you weren't in on church. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and then I know you, you describe a, a different experience of faith today than the one that you were walking through in that season. How, how would you describe that? Um, that's a good question. You know, I think that like a lot of things, there is... Um, let me think for a minute. There's a lot of uh, complication to the process, and I think that's something that a lot of people would um, would maybe struggle with, is saying it has to be either one or the other. And instead, what I end up finding is that there's a lot of overlap. Like you, you're, you know, I was still in a process of deconstruction while I was still beginning the process of reconstruction. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. And so the things that we're rebuilding, and honestly, I think the the place where I probably really began to rebuild was um, around deciding to actually follow Jesus. Which was should not have been the revelation that it was, <laughs> but it time, is right. Which sounds no, I know it sounds dumb though, right? Like <laughs> only if people haven't been there. I think I think a lot of people relate. They're like, oh, I could actually 
follow Jesus. Yeah, I could, I yeah, could yeah, do yeah. that, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, what's funny is I remember um, coming across this one phrase. I, it was um, by a writer named uh, Michael Spencer. He was known as the Internet Monk back in um, the Wild West days of the Internet. <laughs> uh, he's passed away now. But he used to say, um, call it churchianity. Hmm. That we were really good at churchianity, and very few of us were really good at Christianity. And I remember having this huge break with the name Christian. Like, I just could not even use it to describe myself any longer. I was like, calling myself a Christian right now, taking that label, feels like I am in agreement with all these people that I think are wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, politically and and, and um, you know, justice conversations. I mean, because again, one of those things that happens with grief is when your heart breaks, anything and everybody falls in, and you begin to realize and pay attention to the fact that your own small story is not the only story that's going on in the world. It's amazing. <laughs> and so, you know, awakening to that is is part of it. And I felt like I couldn't use the name Christian any longer in good conscience to describe myself. And so I began just kind of being like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, which again. There's no difference <laughs> in theory. Right. And yet for me, it was like, I remember, it was so funny now. I look back on it now and it just bless my own heart because I remember having literally this moment of clarity of saying, well, if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, I should figure out who he is. <laughs> yeah. And that was really the beginning point of me saying, okay, so if I'm not this, then who is Jesus? And what would this look like? And so I began, you know, really where any good Protestant would begin, which is in the Bible. And like any charismatic, it was sloppy and experiential. <laughs> and so it all began there. But I, I spent years studying the Gospels and studying mm-hmm. Jesus and realizing that the flannel graph, nice, moral, tender Jesus I had kind of tricked out of my imagination in Sunday school was not real. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would read things and be like, I think Jesus is kind of being a jerk, <laughs> yeah. right? And I would yeah. be like, this doesn't seem like, well, what does this mean? And how does this work? And what does this look like? And um, really beginning to unpack that. And that was, and so for me, reconstruction was really centered on who is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I began to really honestly just fall head over heels in love. I began to really begin to understand it in a way that I never had. I remember um, one day sitting in my kitchen and I was reading the Sermon on the Mount for like the umpteenth time and just tears pouring down my face. And my husband was actually in the kitchen. He was um, washing some uh, veggies from the garden. And I slammed my Bible shut and I looked at him and he was like, what? What's up? (laughs) I looked at him and I said, I feel angry because... I would have followed this guy all along. Oh, wow. I get it now. I get why people dropped their um, nets and they chased after him, why they gave up everything, why they would chase across continents. And just to be with him, I get it now. Because this, what I'm reading here, this is worth losing everything for, and this is worth rebuilding everything on. And I'm mad that it took me till now to see it. Yeah. I felt ripped off. <laughs> Yeah. And even that anger was a great catalyst for me to be able to say, this is, this is revolutionary. Yeah. This is countercultural. This is upside down everything. Mm-hmm. This is everything I would want my life to look like. And so that began really the, the process of reconstruction of saying, what would it look like to believe that Jesus meant all the things that he said? What would it mean to be this in the world? What are all the ways that I have misunderstood and mischaracterized and misrepresented God? Because I didn't understand this. And then that gave me a lens to read scripture. Mm. That gave me a lens to understand and and love people. That gave me a lens for how I engaged in the world. It gave me a um, a starting point for really everything. It was my origin point. Wow. That phrase ripped off, that really resonates with me. Mm. Like, oh man, somewhere along the way, and it's, I'm not blaming anybody else, but like somehow, whatever happened, I got cut off from the depth of this. And uh, yeah, like I feel that way about explicitly Jesus. I feel that way about the Bible, yes, <laughs> which is a way better book than I was told. Yes, <laughs> I feel that way about. Oh, you know, I love the Bible so much more now that I don't have to take it all literally. It's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. There's a lot there. I, I, um, let me ask you this. Um, I know one thing that like a lot of people I, I hear from in our community and elsewhere who resonate with everything we've talked about so far. Um, the one huge question that keeps coming up is, what about my kids? Mm-hmm. I'm parenting. I'm trying to parent in in faith, right? 
and I just don't know what that's supposed to look like. I hear I hear parents saying, I don't want to give my kids so much to unlearn. Mm-hmm. I, I hear parents saying, I don't know what to do when my, my six-year-old says, is Jonah a true story? Like, it's just a lot of that. I know in our community, you've got kids. How old are your kids now? Uh, 11, 9, 7, and 3. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of my process of deconstruction was while my older two in particular were young children. And that was even a big part of it because I remember, um, like when my eldest daughter was a toddler, um, you know, there was a little children's Bible in the house and um, thinking, well, I should probably read it to her. (laughs) And us reading, like, the story of Noah, you know, which is again something that's, you know, quite common in children's Sunday schools and people put it on the nursery walls and do all these kinds of things. And my little daughter looking up at me and being like, did God kill those people, mom? Yeah. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> yes. And, you know, yeah. the story of Jericho or all these stories where I was just like, oh, ah, yeah. oh, how do I, oh, you know? And so that was really the shift point for me on how I began to uh, frame um, scripture and teach my children. And so the way that we have um, approached that with our kids is, is first of all, recognizing that there will be things they have to deconstruct. Like that there's, I'm there's not, no way, there's no way yeah. to spare them from it. Yeah. I mean, that this, again, if I really believe that this is part of a, a healthy spiritual formation journey, I will build something that needs to get torn down for them. Yeah. And that there will be things that I screw up on. There will be things that I mess up, things that they will have to unlearn. And that learning from my own parents now who have walked this journey with me, that we will unlearn together mm-hmm. and that we will walk that path together. So I think yeah. entering into it right from the get-go of saying, I am not going to get everything right, um, and there will be grace for that. Yeah. There will be grace for that that God is big enough and wide enough for even my failures in how I'm going to phrase this. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we did it when they were really little is we started with the stories of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and we started with where we wanted them to begin, rather than starting with um, things that maybe they would need to understand later. And that's very different than how a lot of people were introduced to faith. They're introduced with, um, you know, Old Testament stories. Right. And instead we... We have framed it by things like God loves you yeah. and that, you know, this is what this looks like and here's why it happened. And I mean, the truth is, is that, um, you know, it will be done imperfectly. One of the things that I remember, you know, and this is one of those things that just always makes me laugh because God has never done just calling my bluff on all my opinions. Um, when my eldest daughter was quite young, I remember having very strong opinions about I'm never going to ask my children to invite Jesus into their heart. Like, that is just not happening in my house any longer. Like, that's just not going to be there. And then when my daughter was like four or five, um, we were having a conversation at bedtime and, um, you know, it was a really sweet and intimate conversation about some things. And just out of the blue, she just looked at me and she says, you know, mom, when I really want to have my heart filled with good things, I invite Jesus into my heart. Wow. Of course you do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so I try really hard with my children to avoid manipulating or crafting a narrative for their own spiritual journey, but instead also recognizing that it's important for them to have some edifice. I think one of the things that oftentimes we do wrong is we try to um, shoulder our children with our own spiritual baggage. Mm. And they don't have that. Yeah. They don't have my baggage. They don't have my my things that are going on. And so even things like when we re-entered um, intentional community at church, they love it with their whole heart. Yeah. And I get to let them love it. Yeah. And I get to keep them there every Sunday and have them do Sunday school and go to youth group and do burger eating contests and all the <laughs> things that would make me roll my eyes maybe at some things at the same time have become deeply tender partners for me and my children's spiritual formation and learning to let them have their own journey instead of saying it has to necessarily mirror mine. Um, giving them a place to start from. I think is very key um, to have children feeling, you know, secure and feeling uh, rooted and grounded in something. Um, And so we try to keep them, you know, connected to the larger story of God. We try to keep them connected to the larger story in the world, Um, give them a a local and a global awareness. Um, 
you know, and, and keep conversations very open, um, while at the same time recognizing that we do things differently than a lot of Christians. And those are conversations we have, especially now that my children are getting older, mm-hmm. um, that they're noticing the differences between us and some of their friends at, you know, a church or, you know, or wherever. Um, well, my friends think, you know, this about, um, you know, this particular issue, but I know you don't think that. Can you talk to me about that? And so yeah, then we have a chance yeah. to kind of explain that and say, well, this is why. And you, know, you can respect your friends who have a different opinion, but this is why I believe that. And um, the conversations now that they are moving into middle school have been wonderful and yeah. hard oh, yeah. and really, really good. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of angst when they were little, and now I feel a lot of joy um, of watching them have their own relationship with God. Yeah. Especially, um, I think that's one thing too that I began to realize is that I didn't have to manipulate or craft it because God was at work with them. Yeah, and I'm, right. I'm a partner with that. Yeah, it's you, not something I'm imposing upon them. Yes, that God is always with them and around them and and loving them, and I'm a partner with that rather than someone who's like imposing it on them from the outside. It's it's existing within them already. Yeah, that's that's another one of those like very orthodox things to say. Is it? But it's like I think like <laughs> who knew I was right? so orthodox? <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like the idea that God is a primary agent. Yes. In um in loving and forming and leading people into faith. It's a very orthodox thing to say, but if you take it seriously, it gives so much permission. It does. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it does. And I think as parents, it's good for us to recognize, I think that sometimes we've been been sold this bill of goods that like, if you do this with your kids, then they will do this. And that's not how it works. Yeah. That is not how it works. And the the people I look around me, the other thing that's been deeply helpful for me as a parent is to look around at parents and kids in my community or in my life that I think are real. And I like their relationship and I like the way that they are. And I get around those parents and I talk to them mm-hmm. and I ask them. And when things come up, I'm asking and I'm paying attention. I am. There's no part of me that thinks I have it figured out yeah. or that I'm going to do it all right. And so I look for kids that are you know, teenagers or adult children that look like they all like each other and they you know, have a good relationship with their parents. And I talk to them a lot, even though it looks very different than maybe what other people's outside view of what a you know, successful and child would look like. I, yeah, I yeah. watch for those people and I listen to them. Yeah. Well, um, that's super helpful. Sarah, I, I feel like you being here this week has uh, been a real gift to our church just to um, help us take Jesus really seriously and um, to hear clearly some of what he's saying and doing. So um, the way you're speaking to our community about um, Jesus's love of, of um, the image of God and women and what they are here to give the world and to give the church so grateful and um, for you to put some language around a journey today that I think a lot of people are navigating themselves. Like I'm super grateful. So thanks for making the trip and thank thanks you. for giving us the time today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It has just been a joy. I've loved my time with you all. Thank yeah. you. You bet.